Let's go to the Word of the Lord now. I think we are ready to do that. And uh, this morning, I want to complete a, um, another sermon that I, I'm, I'm kind of closing little loose ends here before I, I begin a series on, on resiliency and steadfastness and discipline in our lives in terms of uh, remaining uh, faithful to the things that we have uh, committed it to in our lives. Uh, the, uh, the, the idea that being faithful and being steady and uh, overcoming trials and tribulations with the help of the Holy Spirit is an essential quality of the Christian life. I will begin some of those reflections uh, probably next time that I have an opportunity to be with you. Uh, but now what I want to do is finish a, a reflection that I started right at the beginning of the year and uh, was not able to complete it. So you may hear a few things that already I touched upon uh, in that sermon back in Jan January 3rd, a couple of weeks ago, but um, that I want to kind of, uh, you know, uh, really affirm and emphasize. And by the way, for today, and, you know, I, I hope to be able to, do the, be able to do this every once in a while, if you were to go in your iPad or your iPhone right now to lionofjudah.org, I hope what you will see there, and I be, I, we've been checking back and forth because I, I just, it just occurred to me this morning as I was doing my notes and stuff. Um, if you go to lineofjuda.org and you scroll down, you will see uh, uh, an entry that says Sermon Notes. And uh, if you press on that, you will also see a couple on the left-hand side on top, two things. One is my, my, the, the, the notes that I promised you in Ephesians chapter 4 which covered like seven sermons, and I just put them all in one big... Um, they, they begin very schematic, and then they get a little thicker and more clear as, you know, after two or three pages. So you can see the entire flow of uh, my thinking, the Lord's thinking, I would hope, on uh, Ephesians chapter 4, unity, and so on and so forth. But there's another entry there on the left-hand side on top that says January 17, um, which is, of course, today, 2021, and those are the notes that I will be speaking from today. And they also include the notes from my first sermon as well. So I'll be, you know, you can, you can do that. And if that helps somehow, uh, let me know so that we can continue doing it as much as we can. I can't promise right now I, I get slowly into these things as time goes by. But I, I'm realizing that more and more we need to use these um, technologies. So whenever I'm able to, uh, I, I would try and I'll let you know. So you can follow that way. It may be easy for you. If you follow lineofjuda.org, then go into sermon notes and, uh, you know, press on that. If you have any difficulty, press on the text itself, and that will give you, that will download the entire, the entire text of the, the notes for uh, this uh, sermon. Again, try to follow me. I'll try not to deviate too much. You know, at the same time, I want to do, I want to flow as the Lord leads me. Um, in, I may deviate a little bit, but you'll be able to look up and down and find where I will be. So I, I started this uh, sermon uh, uh, titling it, Be Careful How You Live. And you remember that that's one of the things we have said is that we are living in extraordinary times. How many know that we are living in times that are not usual? And um, we are living in perilous, even dangerous times as well. And uh, we need to live in a very deliberate sort of way. So this idea, be careful how you live, and uh, living in the light of the times and discerning the times has been uh, sort of a key element here. And, you know, in the first part, you have those six elements that I will speak on again because I didn't get to touch all of them in the first 
sermon or, or touch on them the way that I wanted to. Um, and I will be going back to some of those things. Uh, but, you know, you will look here, Ephesians 5.15 has been one of those verses that has been thematic and uh, central to our reflections. Be very careful, then, how you live. There's a condition there uh, that, that then means the, the, the times that we are living in and, and also the Lord's desire that we live in a way that is deliberate. So we got to be very careful how, how we live, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So that's calling us as believers, you know, to live a life that is uh, vigilant, to live a life that is uh, deliberate, to not live life casually. We cannot afford to live the Christian life casually. So many people believe that we can just, you know, I come to church, I give my offerings or my tithes at best. I, you know, every once in a while when I'm in, in the mood, I'll read a verse from the Bible. But, you know, the Christian life is consuming. The Christian life is, it, it, it's encompassing. The Christian life, uh, it, it, it invades every area of our thinking, relationships, work life, marriage or sentimental life, friendship. I don't know if I said finances, every area. Of our life. So we got to be very careful. In other words, be very deliberate, especially in the times that we are living in, because these days are evil. These days are, and again, that's not to get all riled up about it. We live in a world that is dominated by the prince of darkness. That is the truth. So we have to be very careful more than ever. And, uh, you know, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says the same thing. Paul to Timothy, but mark this. Be very careful about this. There will be terrible times in the last Days And it goes into a discussion of some of those um, qualities that will characterize uh, culture and people in general. There will be people who will be having a form of godliness, verse 5, but denying its power. There will be, be a lot of religion in the world. A lot of people who are religious, a lot of people who have spiritual you know, concerns and so on. But they won't understand what really the power, that it's all about the power of God and this is a, a very severe statement here. Have nothing to do with such people. I mean, I know that if I said that, many of you would say, wow, the pastor is being too radical here. He's not being loving enough. He's not being generous enough. But this is the word of God, you know, saying, and I'll have, maybe I'll have a chance to talk a little bit more. Have nothing to do with such people. I don't think we can do that because completely, the Apostle Paul in another passage says, you know, um, we would have to be out of this world not to have relationship with the unbelievers. But what it means is, you know, we should not have communion. We should not have a deep relationships um, in the sense of, uh, you know, having uh, strong uh, interaction, strong inter intimacy. We can have friendship, and we need to because that's the way we affect the world and affect unbelievers. But, you know, our loyalty and our commitment and our passion should be with the things of God and with the people, with the family of God, especially those that, that deny the power of God. We should have nothing to do with such people. Um, and, um, you know, we, we go on. Let me go down a little bit more. And then verse 14, it's interesting. It says, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. This is a topic that we have been talking about a lot, no? That we need to, the things that we have learned, the foundations of Scripture, the basic uh, teachings of the Bible, and so on, we need to stick to those things. What we have been taught, we cannot go around, you know, changing our theology and our beliefs just because the culture is flowing in a certain way. We have to know what we believe, 
and we have to remain committed to that. Um, we can't be as, as the waves of the sea tossed about, as Paul says in another passage, you know. And, and then here's this uh, beautiful, beautiful statement that uh, we should all know even by heart. Um, uh, verse 15, and how from infancy, infancy you, Timothy, because Timothy grew up in the, in the gospel, have known the holy scriptures, that is, of course, the Bible. You know, when Paul was saying this, he was speaking about the Old Testament because the, the scriptures hadn't yet been codified into the New Testament. But this certainly applies to the Old and to the New Testaments. You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's this insistence on the Word of God. We have to be people of the Word. I will say something more about that. But that's a, that's, this is one of the key passages in my meditation this morning. You know, this centrality of... Scripture, which we need to be absolutely uh, focused on in the times that we are living in. And these holy scriptures uh, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then there's this really interesting, uh, noteworthy passage in verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed. Theoneustos. God-breathed. It's a strange expression. It's as if God had breathed His Word into those apostles and writers of the Bible. And it has the very life of God in it. This is why we believe that the Bible is unlike any other book. It has the life of God. It has the breath of God, the wind of God, the Spirit of God infused in them mysteriously. Yes, the Scriptures were written by men, but they were inspired by God. And so it says, all Scripture... And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, elekos, which means um, for confronting, for searching out, for examining deeply, for um, inquiring deeply into our souls. There's another passage where Paul says about um, the Bible being like a two-edged sword, I think it's in Hebrews, um, that penetrates deeply. When we read the Bible, and sinking with what Peg says, when we read the Bible, the Bible is not a passive thing that we kind of examine and read and it stays there in the page. The Bible is getting inside of us. And the message of Scripture is searching our souls, searching our minds, confronting us, uh, formatting us. It is really an interaction because the Word of God is alive, it says. So the Word of God is, uh, as we search it, it searches us. And as we read certain things, it confronts us with how we need to align our life with that teaching. And it also forces us to consider certain things that we didn't consider. So it's a very active kind of thing. So, you know, the Bible is useful for teaching, rebuking, you know, inquiring, uh, and correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, man or woman, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you can see how important it is. This is one of the key passages, iconic passages, of all the Bible. This idea that what this book that we are reading it's unlike any other book. It has the very breath of God infused in it. It has the wisdom of God. It has teachings for life, conduct, relationships, as I said, healing, every need, every piece of counsel that we need. It's all there in the Scriptures. And it is the Word of God breathed into this vessel of human language, but containing the very power of God in it. So in another passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, Paul, again, speaking about uh, this time that we are living in. 
And you will notice that in the past few weeks, I've been insisting on this thing of orthodoxy and the Bible and, and uh, clarity, definition, the foundations of the Word of God and being on the, uh, uh, founded on the foundations um, because of the, the importance of this. And, you know, Paul says to Timothy in verse 2, preach the Word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke is the same word here. You know, confront people. Force them to search their inner self and to, and to examine and re-examine their uh, assumptions. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Again, you see this idea, the times that we are living in, in the light of the qualities of the time that we are living in, you need to do certain things in your life. And here it's saying that, you know, there will come a time, and I believe that we are in those times, when people will get offended when you, when you teach them the Word of God. People will get offended when they hear a message that has been being preached for 2,000 years. Wherever the Word of God has been preached, these same principles have been taught over and over and over again. But we are in a time now when, when we teach those same principles that are ancient, uh, people get offended. They will not stand for it. They will react negatively and angrily with annoyance toward that. And yet, what do we do? Do we abandon it? Do we say, okay, you know, this, this is bothering people. I'm not going to preach it. Do we mute it? Do we reduce its intensity? No. It says we redouble our efforts. We are more insistent than ever in preaching that word so that it will really enter deeply into the souls of God's people. Uh, and then it says in uh, verse 4, they will turn their ears away from the truth. This verse 5 uh, it really struck me. It says, but you, who is he referring to? Of course, number one, Timothy, this pastor, young pastor. But in the light of this uh, culture that you are preaching the word in and that you are pastoring in, you keep your head in all situations. I looked up the word uh, that, is that is translated into English, keep your head. In the Greek original, keep your head. Um, in Spanish, it says, se sobrio, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Keep your head. How do you, when does a person keep their head? Uh, when, if things are stormy around you. There's that, ver that uh, poem says, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. You know, it, it, it's calling us. And the reason why I, I stop on this uh, expression, which I had never really looked at so carefully, is because we are living in a time right now in America, for example, where we are, where we need to keep our heads in all situations. Why? Because, you know, many of us are tempted to really fall into anxiety at what we are seeing around us. Uh, we are, the, some, some are depressed, some are anxious, some are fearing for the future of their children, some are fearing for their finances, uh, some are um, panicking almost about COVID-19 or about the political situation in America, the upcoming um, inauguration, what's going to happen in Washington, on and on and on. You know, we are tempted in these times to become really anxious, to lose sleep. And I think this is why many people are tired these days, because we don't know, but we are consuming a lot of emotional energy with all the chatter and all the... Uh, intimations of uh, disaster that are around us. Uh, some of us uh, are reading news and we don't know what to believe. 
and, and you have to invest a lot of time in determining what is that you're going to believe, what is dependable, what isn't. False news in bo on both sides. And all kinds of stuff going on. And what, so normally you live your life not expending too much energy on those things. You, you read the newspapers, you assume that they're saying the truth, or you read science about COVID-19, you assume that these people know what they're talking about. But nowadays we're forced to be on our toes. We're forced to question everything. And so that, that wears us down, you know. That wears us out about the future and so on. And the Bible says, be sober-minded. Keep your head. You know, the words, I looked up uh, some definitions. To be sober, to be calm and collected in spirit. To be temperate. To be dispassionate. To be circumspect. Let's not allow anxiety to creep into our lives now in these times. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, let your prayers be heard before the Lord. And the peace of God will keep you focused on Jesus Christ. So that's just a, an extra bonus there. Keep your head in all situations. Even when we're living in difficult times as we are now, we have to ask the Lord, Lord, keep me centered on you. You're the same God that was existing in 2000 and 2010 and now in 2021, you're the, you haven't changed. People have gone through more difficult things in other moments of their lives. So I'm going to keep my head. I'm going to stay steady. I'm not going to fall into despair. I'm going to put my head down on the pillow. I'm going to ask you, Lord, give me good sleep. We have to fight against anxiety. We have to fight against uncertainty. Keep your head in all situations. Pastors need that as well. I need to keep my head not to become... Uh, anxious about many, many things, okay? So uh, let, let, us, uh, let us go because I, I, this is just preliminary. Read those scriptures. Read, you know, the, the commentary, the stuff that I've um, written there because I want to go down. Go down to like page 7, I think, in, your no, in the notes there if you're following that. And so I'm going to begin here. And um, what I want to do is uh, share with you as best as I can in the time that I have, I am praying that the Lord will keep me really grounded on the on the the theme, because I, I want to at least finish it. There's a lot of material. As the Apostle Paul tells T Timothy, again, we live in evil times. They will get worse. The question is, what should the church, now I'm speaking to the church as a whole. And by the way, these thoughts uh, refer not only to Lion of Judah, but also I think to the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century, in 2021 as well. This is almost like, a, if you will, a manifesto or a statement about what are some of the qualities that churches need to um, emphasize in the light of the times that we are living on. And there are seven things that I'm going to just rush by. As I said, I've talked a little bit about them before. Number one, I think the church needs to emphasize and insist on the basics of the faith. We need to return to the foundations. We need to cultivate what I call and what has been called the spiritual disciplines. I would put on this under cultivate spiritual vitality. God is saying to Lion of Judah, God is saying to me as a pastor and all the pastors and leaders of the church, these are the things that we need to be insisting on in the light of the lives, in the light of the times that we are living. Number one, I hope that in the coming years, as we have done, but in a more insistent sort of way, that we will emphasize more than ever the basics, the foundations of the faith. And that I, I, to, for us to know that God is calling each of us to cultivate and take very seriously uh, practicing these uh, to the, the spiritual vitality that God is calling us to. to. We're like athletes. We need to keep ourselves strong, motivated, focused on the basic disciplines. You know, I was led to uh, remember Richard Foster's um, 
list of uh, spiritual disciplines. If you want to look up about uh, you know, spiritual disciplines in Google, you're going to find a lot of really good material. From this very famous book at a time, that was like 30 years ago, uh, Celebration of Discipline. It's a beautiful book if you ever want to really get into disciplines of life. And, you know, some of those disciplines, as you see here, those who are able to follow, um, some of these disciplines he divided into three major areas. The inward disciplines, what he calls in meditation, prayer, fasting, study of the word. These are basic things that you need to keep your life uh, focused on in these times and always, but now more than ever. He speaks about the outward disciplines um, of simplicity, living simple lives. I don't know of a time when we need to cultivate simplicity more than now. You know, so when there's, oh, that the food is going to be lacking. And this, well, listen, you know, with, with a few strings of spaghetti and a little bit of tomato sauce, you can live in a little piece of bread that you toast. You know, we're, we're so dependent on going out to eat. You know how much money we spend in restaurants. Don't get me started on that. Um, but, you know, Christians are, should be characterized by simplicity. You know, ultimately, if, if need be, I can do without my television. I can do with, without my microwave. I can do without even, I guess my iPhone, well, I don't know. I'll have to examine that. In, 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 I'll put that in prayer because it's such an important piece. But, you know, most of the things that we treasure these days that we're addicted to, one of the things that COVID has done is force us to um, examine what it is that is important and what isn't. We need to eat simply. We need to live simply. I don't need the 75 shirts that I have in my closet all bought at 70% off prices, by the way. I can do with four, three shirts. Come on. You know, we need to live simply. So this idea of simplicity is a beautiful concept. It's a very beautiful value that we can... Solitude. Wow, that's a deep one. You know, cultivating times alone with God. We are so gregarious. And COVID has, you know, torn that from us. We have had to learn to stay home. We have had to learn to be, you know, uh, alone. And, and hopefully it will be aloneness with God. I don't think there's a mature believer who does not cultivate solitude every once in a while. I think we need, you know, most people, they need to either be accompanied by television, the sound of television, accompanied by, by the radio, accompanied by the sounds of their phone, you know. And solitude, aloneness with God is one of the most precious qualities, young people, that you can learn to cultivate. By the way, I address the young people because, you know, today young people are so gregarious, so uh, needing community and so on. Learn to be alone. Learn to spend time alone. Learn to be alone with God. Let, take, a, take a walk and enjoy your thoughts. Develop the, the, the art of aloneness and solitude and silence. These are very, very powerful things. Submission to authority, submission to God. That's a beautiful value. Service, serving others, serving your church. You cannot be a mature Christian if you don't serve somehow the kingdom of God. So these outward disciplines are very important that we need to cultivate. And then there's what he calls the corporate disciplines. Confession of our sinfulness before God. And the confession of the church as we come together to acknowledge that we don't deserve to worship God. We don't deserve to handle his sublime truths. It's all because of his mercy. And we always need to be very mindful of our sinfulness, our brokenness. And the fact of God's mercy and compassion, we don't dwell on our sinfulness. We take our sinfulness as a point of departure to bring it before God and to then just rest. Because when we confess our sins, He covers us with His blood and His forgiveness. So this, it's beautiful. These are beautiful things that, you know, we need to... The corporate discipline, confession, worship, 
guidance, what it means here is um, guidance, I think, as um, spiritual guidance, what is called spiritual direction. You know, find a mentor. Find somebody that you trust. Let yourself be guided. Let yourself be directed. There's a lot of great stuff you can find in the Internet about spiritual direction. That's a beautiful thing. We don't have the time to get into that. In celebration, as we come together, we break bread together. Now, not as much with COVID, but I hope the times will come and we'll have times of fellowship again. When we learn to be a community and a family, as I was saying earlier. So, you know, we need to cultivate vitality. And churches need to be calling people to strengthen themselves spiritually, to reconsecrate themselves. We need to seek spiritual vitality. We need to go back to the basics. We need to strengthen the fundamentals. We are in a time where we cannot afford to be lackadaisical, to be casual about our spirituality. People, you need to be reading the Word. You need to be praying. You need to be fasting. You need to be meditating. You need to be plugged into the source of power that is the Spirit of God. You, can, you will not survive unless you are able to do that. So please, we call you. Practice your own. Do not depend on the church. Do not depend on coming to church. You are called to have your own devotional, personal life and connection with God. There's no substitute for that. Long story there. So again, that, that seeking spiritual vitality in churches should be places that call people to do that and facilitate for them to do that. Discipleship classes and all kinds of other things uh, that you know, churches should be doing more than ever. So number two, we need to dedicate ourselves to reading, knowing, and studying the Word of God. And the emphasis here is the Word, the Bible, to be more specific. Um, we should know the Bible. We should know the, the basic uh, characters of the Scripture, the basic themes of Scripture, the basic divisions of Scripture, the poetic parts, the prophetic parts, the historical parts, the four Gospels, uh, the, his, the, you know, the book of Acts, which is a, a, almost a thing in itself, and the, the epistles, and so on and so forth. We should know those basic divisions of the Bible. And we should know the, you know, the great themes, the great beliefs of Scripture, salvation by faith in grace, for example. The sovereignty of God. These are doctrines that you should, you should know by heart. And you should immediately have all kinds of associations with one of those concepts is mentioned. If you don't have it, that's because you are not and you want to learn about these things. This is what is called Bible literacy. We need to be literate in the Bible. There's a lot of people who know a lot of stuff, but they don't know. They're not literate biblically, and we need to aim for that. We have to become more and more. Lion of Judah has to become more and more a church of the Word. This is why we are emphasizing. And I hope that in January toward the end, I'm, I'm finishing now with the English, with the Hispanic ministry. Today, we begin this uh, read the Bible in a year. And I want to do the same thing. And I hope that may, maybe some of you will commit, a good number of you will commit to reading the Bible as a project in a year. And <clears throat> I'll talk a little bit more about that. So we need to read the scriptures insistently in the spirit. Take time, not casually, but really take time to meditate. We have to become more and more a church of the Word of God. We have to insist on being orthodox without turning that into a rigid, pharisaic, mechanical self-righteousness. You know, the, 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 the loyalty to the Word of God has to be lubricated by the Spirit and by generosity and grace and all these things that make it pliant and, and uh, agile and elastic. Because if not, you become pharisaic. Word, 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 like the Pharisees did, and that's dead. We have to read the Bible with joy, and we have to know it, and we have to insist on it joyfully, not with fear. So all of these things, you know, orthodoxy, in, in our times, we live in times when people don't tolerate the word, as Paul says. 
where the word is in lack, in scarcity, and churches need to um, insist on these things. Let's go down quickly to in, <clears throat> if you have page 10 there, uh, into um, uh, this uh, number three. So we have uh, spiritual vitality, cultivate spiritual vitality. Number two, be biblically, biblically literate. Insist on the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Number three, um, this, is, this is a sort of out of the common ground. Church as an alternative society. Church becoming an alternate culture in the times that we are living in. Why, why do I put that? You know, that as, as a church, uh, Lion of Judah, and all churches, I think, will need to become more and more self sufficient, quote-unquote, cultures that can provide believers with all the basic things that they need to thrive in life. Churches need to become a one-stop shopping place for um, social life, for nourishment for our ministries, uh, for our marriages, for parenting, uh, for just acquiring culture, seeing a movie together or a documentary. Um, big, why? Because we will, live in, we will continue. The world will not get any better or more loving and more appreciative of the values of the kingdom of God. On the contrary, I think the world will become more and more of a desert out there. And um, we need to find our sustenance in, uh, within the church. Imagine the church of the first century, let's say in Ephesus, or in Rome, believers living in a very, sec not a secular, but a very demonic, pagan world. And uh, house churches were like uh, islands in a, you know, in a, in a, or maybe, maybe not that way, oases in a desert. And believers lived a life that they were isolated from the rest of the culture because the rest of the culture did not share the values. They were into paganism. They were into sensuality. They didn't even know God. And so believers uh, lived like uh, surrounded by a hostile, truly hostile culture. Think of Daniel in Babylon. And this is the way the world has become more and more. We used to say that 10 years ago, but it's become more and more that kind of thing, that kind of experience. And it will become more and more as time goes by. And so we need to, uh, you know, make sure that our churches can provide believers with all that they require to feel that they have community, that they have a social life, that they can share with others their cultural needs, and so on and so forth. And so we need to, you know, become more, again, uh, more self-sufficient. Let me put it that way. That does not mean that we isolate ourselves from the world, and that expression of the world. doesn't mean that we kind of, you know, go around walking with our heads down because we don't want to see anybody we don't want to talk to anybody, like some of these Hasidic Jews that are so sincere. But, you know, we're, we're not like that. We don't want to be like that. But it does imply a growing sense of identity and difference between what we embrace and what people who do not know God embrace and practice. We have to go back. You know, when, look at how many times uh, the Scriptures talk about the world, in the, in the New Testament especially. The world. What do they mean by the world? The world is that. It's the culture that does not know God. And, you know, the, uh, the Scriptures emphasize that we are different, that we are separate. This is what the word sanctity means. We are separate from the world. Think also of Israel being surrounded by pagan tribes that did not know God. And we are supposed to be that light, 
that shows the world that there's a different way to live. Not with self-righteousness, not with a sense of, ah, we're better than you. On the contrary, great humility, but living out the blessings that come from being faithful to the Word of God. When a community is faithful to the Word of God, it is prospered. It is blessed. Their children are blessed. Their finances are blessed. They experience joy. Uh, and people look admiringly and enviously at times at those uh, communities that live by the Word of God. But there is a separation. There is a difference. We are different from the world. And I think what we have lost this sense of difference, particularly in the tw late 20th century, early 21st. We have lost the sense of difference that the Bible so emphasizes in our desire to ingratiate ourselves with the culture. But the Bible, it, 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 it emphasizes more separation than identity with. I, I think there's a well-intentioned desire to be liked by the culture. Who wants to be hated? We, we, Christians don't, want, don't cultivate the hatred of the world. No. But the Bible says that the world will not love us, no matter how much we try. Uh, the world will not love us. We may try to speak a language that is more, you know, acceptable and less confrontative and, uh, uh, you know, less stark. We may twist ourselves into all kinds of nice phrases that will not confront people. But you know what? In the end, the world will not love us. This is the Bible saying it. It's not me being pessimistic. There is a structural animosity, enmity, between the culture that does not know God or cultivate fear of God and love of the Word of God and those who do. And I think that in the desire these days, feeling isolated, you know, many churches are being led to slowly mute and lower the volume of holiness, sanctity, the moral dictates of the Word of God, the distinctives of uh, the Christian faith, in our desire that if we don't do those things, people will come in and they will follow the Lord. It doesn't happen that way. You know, I, I think it's the very opposite at times. You know what the most powerful asset for the, word, for the church is? Scandal. And that's a biblical word, the scandal of the cross. Scandal is really what confronts Satan in culture and breaks down the walls of the enemy. When we preach the word of God, it is so counter cultural, counterintuitive, that it scandalizes the world. But that scandal is like a sword that pierces the defenses of the enemy and breaks down. People may initially react with anger, but then that word prevails and it breaks their insights and it, it softens them to the gospel. If we give up that weapon of scandal and clarity and replace it with, you know, just muted expressions of the gospel... We are giving up the most powerful weapon that we have, which is preaching the Word of God no matter what happens, being faithful, doing it lovingly, humbly, and then let the Word do its work. It's not me. I don't have to mute the gospel in order to get people to come into the kingdom. They're the ones who need the kingdom, not us for them to come in. I want them to come in. I want them to be saved. But it's at what price? And uh, that means that we will be separate from the world. The world will not like us. We will have to learn to live that daily martyrdom of feeling alone. And uh, we cannot change an easy experience, you know, uh, by giving up the martyrdom that comes from living out the word vis-a-vis -vis the world. And uh, we have lost this sense of difference. You know, 
more and more we have entered into a time uh, when uh, teaching this idea of difference, of holiness, separation from the world, will become more and more urgent than ever. And that's why we need to participate as a community in all kinds of things together. It is not enough for us just to come to church. And I've said before, the English ministry is a very, it's a very unique kind of uh, community. But brothers and sisters, we have to make every effort to become more of a family. When the time is appropriate and some of this stuff dies out, we need to find ways to greet each other. And even now, you can say, see somebody that you don't know and wave at them, you know, and, and, and uh, acknowledge their presence in some, some sort of physical, distant, appropriate way. But we need to cultivate that, and you are responsible for that. Don't wait until somebody greets you from afar or acknowledges you. No, you do it. You are a minister. You are the constructor of this family here, along with the Holy Spirit. So we need to make our churches um, alternate societies. And I do refer you to one book, which is very strong, very powerful book. It's not easy to read. It's very thick. The Benedict Principle. I may have mentioned it before by Rod Dreher. The Benedict Principle. It's a very powerful book. It has been extremely influential, very informative, very inspiring. I don't agree with all the things that, that Rod Dreher says, but uh, there's a lot of living in the light of isolation uh, and the church becoming more and more a, an alternate society and cultivating community and so on and so forth. So that's a third principle. We must cultivate churches that are more and more alternative societies, places where people can have their needs, various needs of life met. So we have vitality, we have the centrality of the Word of God and being biblically, being biblically literate, and that we have this idea of church being a self-sufficient, as much as possible, alternative society without ceasing to love and reach out to people and being attractive to, the, to people, but out of the right foundations. Number four, and here's an important one. Here I will emphasize uh, our youth. Young adults, young people, younger types. Because I think this is a big barrier. And churches, the Church of Jesus Christ in our time, need to address this need within our youth culture. We must ensure that our young people know the Word of God. And now referring to the youth specifically. And receive solid biblical teaching. We have to do everything possible to form in them a biblical sensibility, an orthodox sensibility. And we have to do this uh, defensively at this point. We have to do this uh, deliberately and with an attitude. Because we are in a time when uh, our youth are slipping away from the truth of Scripture more and more. Um, and, uh, our, you know, many of these groups that fight against the church say that. You know, you may be fighting now. Uh, and you may be succeeding, but in five years, in ten years, your youth will be on our side. They will believe what we believe. And this is truly happening in droves right now. Young adults, young people are leaving the church in droves. I think the, the, one of the negative results is that now what, you are, what, is, being ha what is happening is that we are uh, having uh, young churches made up of young adults and, you know, maybe a smattering of... Uh, uh, adult people or older people. B 
because youth are now seeking their own community that will teach the things that are common to youth. So there's a lot of churches right now where our youth are not, uh, are not being taught. We are not providing a confrontational gospel, but one that merely affirms and encourages people and portrays a falsely tolerant and overly benevolent God. There's a name for that that I don't remember right now. I don't want to confuse you with too many terminologies. But you know, um, and this is happening also in, in many churches as well, where people come to be affirmed, people come to be told that God loves them, people come to be told that, uh, yeah, God understands your addictions and uh, your problems and so on and so forth. Yes, He does, but He also calls us to holiness. He also calls us to inner struggle. He also calls us to seek transformation and deliverance, and God does give it if we seek it. But if we just teach people, hey, God loves you, God is good, God's going to prosper you, God's going to give you a Mercedes, He's going to give you the Audi that you're lusting for, don't worry about it, it's going to come. And He doesn't mind too much if you stray here and there, whatever, or if you live an ungodly lifestyle. We are lying to people. We are giving them false assurance. And uh, we need to teach our youth that, they, they, that God calls hope for holiness. God demands adherence to biblical doctrine. We, we cannot excuse deliberate, persistent separation from the Word of God and the moral dictates of the Scriptures. We need to teach our youth uh, this biblical literacy. We need to teach our youth this uh, holiness. In order for our youth to resist the deception that increases every day, they need to be inoculated through the solid, insistent teaching of the Word and the principles of the Gospel. Lion of Judah needs to, to we, we cannot uh, have young people come to the church just because we don't address them, we don't confront them, we tell them it's okay, yes, it's all right to live an ungodly lifestyle or whatever. Um, no, our youth are seriously in need of corrective teaching because they are being seduced by ungodly elements of this culture. And so Lion of Judah, it's, it's youth ministers it's uh, children's uh, ministries. It's young adult ministries. They need to uh, insist on that doctrine once given to the saints. And all those who minister to youth in our church, and I think in the church in America as a whole, need to be really remedially now teaching our youth because we're losing them by droves. And if we don't do something in five, seven years, we will have lost the young people in our churches. They will not stand for the kind of teaching that is required in our time. So we need to uh, address our youth culture. Very important. And number five, um, I, I think one of the most damaging effects of the COVID epidemic has been the loss of practice of attending church and meeting corporately. Again, here's another thing that is not common, I, but I want to isolate it. I want to insist on that. Again, let me just uh, clarify right from the very beginning. Anybody who feels uh, apprehensive about coming to church, this is not meant to kind of fill you with fear or, or with condemnation or guilt, okay? There's a lot of people not coming to church because they have an elderly parent or they have somebody who is, whose immune system is compromised, who have bad health and so on. There's also people who feel very responsible toward others, Young people, for example, who may not come to church, not because they're afraid of COVID, but because they're afraid of passing it on if they're asymptomatic and so on and so forth. 
even though, you know, I would qualify that a bit. But there are people who have legitimate reasons for not being in church. And we address those people. This is why we have the internet and so on and so forth. And my words are not meant to condemn you. My words are not meant to fill you with uh, guilt and so on and so forth. But I think that there's a lot of people who really have no reason not to come to church. They don't feel fear. I mean, they go everywhere. They go to parties. They go to dinner with their friends. They shop around very freely. They're, they walk the streets of uh, Assembly Row or downtown Boston. And uh, they're doing a lot of things that, you know, that they're going on vacation to other countries that are full of COVID. They do all these things. But then when it comes to coming to church, they're afraid of coming to church. And I say, what? We have a specialized virus that only attends churches? You know? No. I, I think we need to be consistent. So my, my call is anybody, I think, who, who has no reason in their inner being, who has no conscious, conscience-dictated reason to come to church should make every effort. Because we, have, we are slowly losing the habit of coming to church. And you know, habits can be lost in a month, in two or three weeks of not practicing them. And uh, coming to church is a discipline. And like any exercise or anything like that, if you don't practice it regularly, your muscles become lax and weak. And so we've had this virus now for what? Since March? Um, uh, you know, the fear of it. It's been around for longer than that. But we're talking about nine months or something of that nature. And it's amazing, you know, in that time, people can become comfortable. I'm telling you, I, I, I sometimes, I'd love to stay home on a Sunday and uh, talk to you from, you know, my house in my pajamas. You know, it's very comfortable. It's nice to have your breakfast while you're watching the service. And by the way, don't watch a service. Don't watch the service. You have to participate in it. You have to be worshipful if you are watching. At least, you know, do that much. Dedicate time and energy and focus to it. You are worshiping. You're not watching a television program, watching YouTube. No, you're, you're, you're participating. But uh, I'm concerned because all the statistics say that there's millions of people probably in America who will never come back to church. Or if they do, they will come every once in a while. If we're not careful, we will lose the habit of coming to church. On a snowy day, on a cold day, on a rainy day, on a cloudy day. And the reason will increase why we don't come to church. And it will be easy. So for me, I tell them, and why do I have, have I insisted on opening the church and being? It's not because I'm concerned about the money. Although that's a, that's a legitimate concern for a pastor and the finances of the church. It's not that I'm concerned, I don't know, for whatever. I am concerned about the fact that it is important to worship the Lord together. In unity, physically, uh, seeing each other, making efforts uh, to do that. I mean, uh, David says, I will not offer the Lord any sacrifice that doesn't cost me anything. There's something very beautiful when I honor God by not you know, staying in the bed, in bed all the time, you know, ironing my clothes, getting ready on Sunday, getting up in time and coming to church to worship this loving, generous God and, and paying my sacrifice. There is something beautiful about that. My sacrifice of praise, as the Bible says. And so I really am concerned, and this is why pastorally, 
I think the church needs to insist that we need to come to church. Why wouldn't you if you did before? And if you're not afraid of coming, why would you not do it? And it's not that I want to see a lot of people. Praise the Lord for those who come. I mean, we have hundreds of people coming at the end of the day and thousands watching us over the Internet. But that's not the point. The point that there, there, there should be a remnant. There should be people who are worshiping God sacrificially. And uh, this is something the church has practiced for 2,000 years. Israel practiced it before for another couple of thousand years. Why can't we do it? So if you, were, if you used to come to church, I, I, you know, I don't buy necessarily this idea of, oh, I can worship God anywhere. Or maybe we're now into a new technological time when, you know, church will be. You remember those days when we were scandalized by people worshiping uh, in, in these, uh, what do you call it, those drive-in churches. Many of us ridiculed that. Well, we're way past that at this point now. Um, you know, at least those people drove in to go to church. Uh, now we just stay home in our pajamas. I think that uh, we need to be insistent, and this is a call to the conscience of God's people, that uh, we need to continue practicing corporately attending church. Uh, I, I sense a, a, a great sense of duty. I have a great sense of duty to defend this practice of going physically to church. And we need to sound the alarm. There are churches that have been closed for months and months and months. They're open. They're closed. They have a sign. I saw a beautiful sign. It's true. As, you know, the, well, let me not even say it because I may, I may get in trouble. Somebody may see it and may feel alluded to. No, but this idea, you know, it saddens me when I go by and I see buildings that clearly have been closed for, shuttered for months and months and months. In a church of 500 or 800 people, aren't there 20 who may want to worship the Lord? And even if it's just a cappella, whatever. So I think we need to, you know, I, I could go on and on here. I urge all those who have no legitimate reason to stay away from church to make every effort and to ask the Lord to help them re-find, rescue that habit of physically gathering together. This is one thing that the church needs to be insisting on, and I will insist on it, hopefully lovingly, not in a condemnational sort of way, but at least we need to do that in our time. America, the church in America now needs to enter into a mode of aggressiveness toward calling people back, when, especially when vaccines and so on have their effect. Two more. I think we need to, as a whole, in these barren times, we need to insist on a spirit-filled church, a spirit-filled church. We will not be able to resist the deception that will increase in these days if we are not sealed with the Holy Spirit, using that terminology that is very biblical. We need to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. What is going to prevent us from going more and more into heresy in the passing of, with the passing of time? I think it is that sealing, that fullness of the Holy Spirit. That means that we, we have to seek the infilling of the Holy Spirit, seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's a good Pentecostal idea. And I don't mean by that that you have to be sort of like the classical Pentecostal speaking in tongues and, you know, rolling on the floor and all this stuff. No, I think there's a way of being filled with the Spirit that comes from those disciplines that I've talked about. It's having that fullness, having that vitality, having that joy, having that aggressiveness, having that conviction that comes from practicing those disciplines of the Scriptures, uh, of prayer, fasting, meditation, 
Time alone with God, simplicity, service. I think that's what the Bible means ultimately. The bottom line, this is what being filled with the Holy Spirit is. I do believe in tongues. I practice it myself. I, I believe in many things that are elements of the Pentecostal outlook. But when I speak of being Pentecostal, I don't mean denominationally. I mean biblically. I mean that fullness of, of God. And, that, and yes, you need to ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. You need to have an experience where the Holy Spirit bubbles over and um, overflows in your life. I think we need to connect with emotion when we worship God. We need not be afraid of emotion. We need not be afraid of lifting our hands. We need not be afraid of kneeling in front of our seat if the Lord pulls, puts us in that direction. We, we need not be afraid of, you know, throwing ourselves on the floor in, in a sign of adoration. We, we need not be afraid of tears flowing down our eyes, of expressions of joy and amen, a hallelujah, a praise the Lord. These are, this is what makes up for the... the Spirit-filled life, the Pentecostal life. When we worship, God delights in we worshiping Him with our body, with our arms, uh, with our feet, with different instruments, with expressions of spontaneity and, and uh, powerful, passionate expressions of joy in the Lord. And you don't have to wait until you feel the joy. Put the joy into motion by expressing joy, and the joy will come into your heart as well. You will feel it. This is what I mean by a Pentecostal outlook, a fullness of the Holy Spirit. Without this impartation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will not, number one, we will not be able to be effective. I'm here on page 15, top part, if you're following. We will not be able to be effective in life and service. You need the power of the Holy Spirit to allow you to lead a good, strong, vital life for marriage, for parenting, for work life, for physical needs, for emotional needs. When the Holy Spirit is overflowing in you, it washes away many of the impurities of life. So if you want to be effective in life, if you want to be effective in service, this is what the Holy Spirit is for. He is the counselor. He is the paracletos. He is the, the, the aid that comes to your side and pushes you and encourages you and counsels you. Um, you cannot be effective. You need that fullness of the Holy Spirit. Number two, you will not be able to resist this slide into heresy and bad doctrine that we have talked about. The only thing that would prevent you from that creeping heresy that we see in this world and in this time, this is the beginnings of that whole Antichrist, by the way, you know, uh, orbit of uh, ideas. You know, and what is going to hold us from sliding into seduction? It is that fullness of the Holy Spirit. So you need it more than ever. And finally, without this fullness of the Spirit, you, you will not, I will not be able to understand and adopt what I call a supernatural outlook, which we need to cultivate, a supernatural outlook, which is part of a truly biblical outlook that I spoke about earlier. You know, we need, a, we need to look at the world supernaturally. This world is populated by demons and by angels, by the Holy Spirit and by the Prince of the Air. This world has miracles happen in this world. Mysterious things happen in this world. We are in contact with, you know, the, 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 the cosmos in many kinds. It is a mysterious world. And uh, we cannot lose that, that supernatural outlook of the world. That includes, you know, prophecy. The importance of prophecy. I think a lot of Christians these days are making all kinds of silly mistakes 
because they don't, they don't read the prophecies. They don't read Isaiah. They don't read Joel. They don't read Hege. They don't read uh, uh, the book of uh, uh, Zechariah or, or uh, you know, all of these different... They, they, don't, they have not isolated all these prophecies about Israel, about the end times, uh, on and on. And so they don't read prophecy. They don't understand prophecy. And therefore, they're making a lot of silly mistakes. They're not recognizing the times that they are living in because they're totally ignorant about these prophecies that have been circulating in Christian life for thousands of years. You need to know the prophecies. You need to know these books. How many of you have read Joel lately or the book of Haggai or the book of Zechariah? These are powerful, powerful books, prophetic books, and you need to read them. You need to know them. You need to know about spiritual warfare because the Satan is, is out there doing crazy, crazy things. How many people do I pray for, particularly in the, English, in the Spanish service? People who are affected, here, even here in our church, people who are affected by, you know, you think that poltergeist is just a word for one of these uh, crazy movies that you see in television? This is real. And people are experiencing these things. And people, I have, over the years, I have been in deliverance sessions dozens of times. Satan is real. Satan moves in your life. Often, in the best of circumstances for him, he will move in your life without you being aware that it is him. He is the cause. He is the origin of many of the things that are afflicting you, many of the addictions, many of the problems that you're having at home, your children, your married life, your emotional life. And it's not that we will see the devil everywhere. We will become paranoid about Satan. No. But we, we must understand that, yes, the devil, what did we say last week? Don't give the devil a foothold. The Bible calls us to be vigilant because Satan, like a lion, is prowling around waiting for whom to devour. Satan is not some, you know, mumbo-jumbo concoction. He's real, and he's part of a, knowing about Satan, knowing about the angelic, is part of a solid, healthy spirituality. And then, you know, that this uh, supernatural outlook also involves, you know, a, a knowledge of revelation. How many know that God speaks to us if we listen, if we ask him to speak to us? How many know that God can speak in dreams, that God can speak even in a vision, that God can speak to you through a good, solid, prophetic word? Not, you know, a lot of stuff that's been going on, Long, long discussion there. But no, I have benefited many times from a prophetic word of encouragement or even of confrontation that has come from someone. And uh, we understand, we have to understand what the prophetic is all about. It's not prediction. It's also forceful, forceful, uh, forceful telling, truth telling, and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, if you're not in expectation that God is going to speak you, to you today, you will, he will not speak to you today. Or he will speak to you today and you will ignore it. You won't understand it. You won't receive it because you're not, you're not asking the Lord. You're not hungry for revelation. How many of us go to bed thinking, God, speak to me tonight through a dream? Uh, we should. God can find you in any corner. God can find you in any uh, casual encounter. God will speak to you in all kinds of ways. What was Mary doing when the, whole, when the angel came? She was probably cooking, you know, some Israeli food at that moment, and that's when the angel came. you got to be expecting God to speak, always. You have to be seeking ways of understanding God. That's what I call a supernatural outlook. There are many believers who have given that up, and they don't even care about it. They don't even have theological arguments against it, because they don't even think about it. But this idea of the God who spoke through prophecies in the Bible, the God who speaks to you through prophetic utterances and words, the God who is powerful to for you to resist the devil when he comes to attack your life. These are the things that you need to know. These are part of this Pentecostal outlook that I am talking about. And the final, again, this is why these notes are important because there's so much material. But, you know, I want you to, these, these are the, the, the spiritual distinctives um, that um, we need to bear in mind. 
And Lion of Judah needs to keep in mind in these coming times. The last one is, um, and this is a really exotic one. And know what I am saying. I need to find the right words. Because Lion of Judah has struggled with this. And it will continue to struggle in our times. And I think the church of Jesus Christ as a whole will struggle with this one. This is one of the most, the biggest sources of division and of heresy in the church today. We need to gain a proper biblical understanding of what it is to be a socially committed, socially responsible congregation. Because there's a lot of talk about social justice that is uh, leading churches into heresy. And we need to rescue and preserve this wonderful concept of social justice. It is a good concept, but we need to insert it into a biblical framework. And we need to phrase it and conceive it in biblical terms. Okay? In the last few decades, this issue of social justice and human rights has entered into, vo into the vocabulary and the consciousness of the modern church. And it keeps increasing in, in, in tension, in tense, tension, in volume, intensity. And I think this is a proper concern, as I have said. It is a proper concern. The issue of social justice and human rights, uh, and, and our church has been in the forefront of this concern since we first came to Boston. We are a church that is known and that is deeply engaged in social justice in many of the things that we do. We, we, we believe deeply in social justice. But we should remember that social justice is, is not something that, that it, it's, not, it's not new in the church. I think there's a lot of people who accuse the church or call the church into being socially just and socially, as if, you know, as if this, is, this has not been a distinctive of, of the church of Christ since the first century and all throughout. So, this nation has all kinds of charities and, and initiatives of social justice and, and foundations because of its Protestant foundation. This is why wherever Christianity has flourished, concern for the poor, the weak, the widow, the orphan has also been a distinctive of these cultures. Not dominantly so, but deeply so. And America is one of the most uh, generous nations in the world and in history okay let's not forget that the church of Jesus Christ has been involved in the issue of social justice since the first century look at act 6 the, 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 the polemic that arose out of feeding the widows of the Jews and the Greeks the church has always been doing and calling people to social justice because some make it sound as if the church has not done that you know as if they're teaching us something new that we have never engaged in I would say that what is new, however, is the exaggerated emphasis placed on it. And what I, I would interpret as a, an unbiblical interpretation of social justice. That's what's new, really, in my opinion. Because the church has been called, and the, the Bible has called us continually to that. And, and the Christian church, in, in, in perfect ways or in very intense ways, has always practiced social justice. I say that this, your being here is a social justice statement. We have immigrants. We have undocumented believers who are here. We have African-Americans, and we have uh, Anglo-Europeans, and we have men and women ministering and serving the Lord. Uh, we have people who are struggling with addiction and homelessness. That is social justice. Churches like Lion of Judah, for the glory of God, are a walking social justice statement and corporate entity, not to, uh, not to revel in that. It's just a fact, okay? So uh, what is, you know, what we need to preserve that. We need to cultivate that. We need to keep that. 
I think what we have is uh, at times in, in the 21st century and in 2020, 2021, is a, an exaggerated version of that, which the devil is very happy to um, addict us and to, to get us uh, anxious about certain things so that we lose the perspective that we need. There's a lot of people out there, the church, our church is trying to prove to people that we are socially active, that we are socially sensitive, that we love the poor, that we love the weak. We don't have to prove that. We have to prove it to God. And if we prove it to God, if we do what the Bible says, we will be socially just. And, and then maybe we can, some churches are called to specialize and to be more active than others. But here's, here's some of the things that I think uh, are not biblical, and that we need to replace these concerns for social justice for biblical concerns. So number one, I think homosexual activism, for example, and the whole transgender fluidity uh, doctrine has become confused with simple human rights. And, and homosexual activism has been very, very astute in joining human rights with homosexual rights. There's a lot of stuff there that we could go, go into. But there's a lot of believers now who think that if we are not pro-homosexuality, or at the very least, you know, cautiously tolerant or not antagonistic to homosexuality, if you're not that, then you are not being biblically generous and compassionate and correct. And the devil is very good at confusing things. So we have to understand what the difference is between love, tolerance, uh, compassion, and um, humility toward those who struggle with sexual addictions of any sort. Pornography, adultery, promiscuity, whatever it might be. Different sorts of uh, gender issues and so on and so forth. You know, that we have to be, we have to have a balance. We have to love. We know that there's a struggle, that we are all struggling. And the church has to, our church has to be loving, accepting, compassionate for those that are in, in the journey. But we cannot say to all who struggle, hey, it's okay. Just, that's all right. We know you, you, you're hopeless and helpless. So might as well just, you know, limp along until you die because God loves you. No, we have to walk generously, compassionately, humbly. And at the same time say, hey, but God wants us to go in that direction. He, he will be with you. If you fall, he will pick you up. If you're in struggle, he will not reject a, a heart that is broken and contrite, as the Bible says. So we need to be careful that we don't confuse one thing with the, with the other. We need to be compassionate and we need to be also truthful and just. So that's one area that I think Satan is having a heyday right now. Number two, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, animosity toward our nation's history and identity. And there are a lot of people saying America is, you know, emphasizing just the sinfulness. America is extremely sinful. It has committed atrocities. Its history is laden with scandalous, reprehensible, hateful, exploitative things with huge dramatic violations of the Word of God. Yes. But what nation hasn't? Throughout what nation that has wielded as much power as America has? has not faltered and made all kinds of mistakes. Look at England, France, Germany, all the nations of the world. Look at their histories. America should not be singled out as sort of this, uh, you know, this abhorrent nation. Yes, we, we can look at it the way we look at sin in any, any other manifestation, in a human being, whatever. We look at it, we acknowledge it, and we say we need to do better. We need to criticize with generosity. But today, I think people are making a business of uh, pointing out the, the sinfulness of our history. So America is being painted as an evil nation, a bad nation. 
slave uh, driving nation. These, these are things that we are paying for. It. Even today, we'll continue to pay, yes, because it's reprehensible to God. But at the same time, we need to also see all the good things in our nation, in our history. Those pilgrims who came from Europe, these were godly people. Yes, there were mistakes made, but who doesn't make them? You, have you not made a mistake in your life? Has your family, aren't there things in your family history that are reprehensible and horrible? Yes, they are, and so they are in America. But I think we have confused good, healthy criticism with hatred of our nation, in a sense. And I, I have to, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant. And I think that there, there, there have been very few nations in history that have been more noble and more uh, used by God in wonderful ways than America. And I love this country. And that's why I'm passionate when I see that all is just being attack, attack, attack. We need to stand up and say, no, I love America. I love this nation. Without getting into nationalism. Without getting into, you know, jingoism and all kinds of other stuff that are horrible. And that we should never participate in. I, I, I'm not, uh, uh, how should I say, I'm not fanatic about America. As I'm not fanatic about the Dominican Republic where I come from. I love it. Yes, it's a good nation. And there are a lot of things that need to be preserved, admired, and be grateful for. If we're in this nation, we've got to be grateful for this nation. Let's not speak ill alone of this nation. I know as an immigrant, I'm grateful that the Lord has brought me here. And I, I will do everything possible to be a contrib contributor to the health of this imperfect nation. So, you know, again, animosity to our nation's history has become confused with an appropriate, balanced, sober criticism of it. And we need to find the balance. I think a third area is a desire to speak and relate to culture has led many to seek to tone down the call to righteousness and holiness in the scriptures. We want to speak to the culture. We want the culture to uh, love us and to come in. They won't love us, but they'll come in and we want them to, to appreciate what we have. We don't want to cut down the dialogue, but neither should we let the culture of this world, we should not conform to this world, as Bible, the, Romans 12 says, but rather we should transform ourselves and call others to transformation. Long story there, but I think this desire to be culturally astute has driven us to become culturally uh, seduced and co-opted. Long story there. Then a, a fourth area that I think is uh, of social justice, compassion toward the weak and the disadvantaged has often turned into paternalism and a refusal to call the weak and the disadvantaged into accountability when necessary. Again, I, I believe that a lot of people who are culturally sensitive and love the weak and the addicted and the poor have ended up paternalizing them. I love the poor too much to be paternalistic toward them. I love the poor too much to not tell them, hey, you're not, you need to, there are certain things, certain habits that you need to change. There are certain practices that you need to acquire. There are certain things that you need to give up. There's a certain price that you need to pay in order to escape poverty and addiction. And people need to be told this. If I treat them like little babies, like little children, I am disrespecting them. I'm paternalizing them. I'm dishonoring them. The way I honor my brothers and sisters who are in struggle is by applying what I apply to myself, which is I'm responsible. There are certain, certain price that I need to pay. But nowadays you have a lot of people who feel afraid to call people into accountability because if they do, they're afraid that they're being unjust. Or others will say, you are being unjust. <clears throat> you are being racist. You are being discriminatory. No. We have to balance the call to accountability with compassion and generosity. And finally, if I haven't uh, um, antagonized all of you here, I, I think uh, 
You know, the appropriate criticism of authority has often turned into suspicion of and resistance to authority. Uh, I think, um, you know, rebelliousness has turned into a cultural virtue nowadays. Question authority in every way. Defund the police. You know, all politicians are, you know, not to be trusted or liars or whatever. No. I think respect for authority is a distinctive of the Christian life. Look at Romans, um, what is it, or the least, the one that I preached on, 13? Romans 13. Um, uh, the, the, it's, a, it's a difficult passage. We have to respect authority. I think the default posture of a believer is to respect authority. And then only when authority makes itself unworthy of my respect do I question it, do I disobey it. But nowadays people have changed it around. Now the default mode is suspicion toward authority, rebelliousness to authority, resistance to authority, and then in some exceptional cases we will respect it and uh, we will uh, encourage it. I think it's the other way around. Christians are called to respect authority and, and then to also keep their eyes open, to be sober about how they... There's a biblical way of engaging in social justice issues. And this needs to be validated and insisted upon. But there is a way of addressing these issues that is worldly and secular that the church has to avoid at all costs. And we need to know the difference. And that's why you need a biblical culture. That's why you need to be steeped in the mentality of Scripture. Because if you are steeped in the mentality of Scripture, you will immediately know when uh, you're violating the attitude of Scripture. And that's the only way is by just becoming so saturated with the word because you read it every day you explore it every day that you immediately you, something inside of you immediately reacts against anything that is not that doesn't have a biblical sound or a biblical feel feel to it finding the proper balance between the two is crucial and requires a lot of spiritual fortitude strength and this is why we need a proper biblical foundation and the fullness of the holy spirit amen I've said a lot, but I, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit will remind you of at least one or two of these things. And as I say, the notes are there if you want to look at them in the website, lionofjudah.org, the English portion, sermon notes. Let this be a part of your reflection this week, okay? So let's, let's take a moment to look inside ourselves now and ask the Holy Spirit to mm, impress, seal, um, finalize these truths in our spirit. Even if you didn't understand everything or remember everything, it will be there in your spirit. It will be there. And uh, ask the Holy Spirit now to bring that forward. Bring it up every once in a while. Let's commit to being a church. I pray, Lord, help us to live out these principles and help your church in America and in the world in the 21st century to put into practice these principles and help us to be a godly culture, a godly people. We cannot do it without you, Holy Spirit. Make this church a powerful, strong force for good in our city and in our nation. We refuse all lies of the enemy. We refuse all false teaching. May it never find a foothold in this congregation, Father. And help us to adhere to these values with great humility, with great understanding that we only put for the grace of God can we remain standing. And only because of His great grace, compassion, and mercy are we able to uh, preach your gospel or serve you or handle your word or expect good things from you? We are aware of that, Father. More than ever, we need you and your mercy to surround us and hold us up. Thank you for having us here today. Lead us from this place with great joy, hope, 
expectation of your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.